Open up to the book of Hebrews, chapter 4, for me. And I'm going to be as succinct as possible tonight and deliver what the Word of God has for me to say. I love Wednesday night believers. I love all believers, but I love Wednesday night believers because they come with a purpose on purpose. Amen. I know you've got plenty of stuff to do. Your weeks are busy. Praise the Lord. So we honor that, and thank you for being here. Let's just ask the Lord to help us out here. In the name of Jesus, Father, we thank you. You are our honored guest always. You're such an awesome God. So we invite you to speak among us, to speak in us, to speak through us, to be with us tonight, Father. And in the name of Jesus, Father, I thank you that you honor vessels of clay to minister your word. But Father, I thank you tonight that you would think through my mind and speak through my lips the oracles of God. That Father, I wouldn't act of natural man's opinion, but speak from the word of God and of truth. And anything that is against that would fall by the wayside from their ears. They wouldn't even remember it. It would be cast down. But that which is of spirit would sear its way into their soul and their spirit and transform the way they think, the way they act, and the way that they live in all fullness of capacity. Father, we invite your spirit to be with us. We thank you for being here. Where two or three are gathered, your word says you are there. So you are definitely here because we've got more than that number. And we thank you for it, God. And we honor you in the name of Jesus. Everybody said amen. All right. All right. Let me get all settled here. We're going to start the familiar scripture in Hebrews chapter 4. Amen. Amen, amen, amen. Thank you, Lord. I'm going to read something to you guys. Came across this excerpt just a, about a couple of weeks ago. And I think it kind of is very... Though the book that I was looking at is not a, a new book. It's actually a classic and an older book. I thought this excerpt, that, as it had been done in a new edition, was um, very defining for where we stand right now in the time and age that we live in. Let me just read it to you. Fundamental Christianity has suffered great damage through the efforts of some theologians to excuse their own spiritual impotence through relegating everything supernatural into an imaginary transition period of dispensational truth, which cannot be scripturally proven. It can only be substantiated through their own interpretation of isolated passages and is perpetrated through blind traditionalism, not unlike that which Christ faced. Yet deep within the hearts of sincere men, there was longing to rescue the book of Acts from becoming nothing more than a historical record and to put it back in its proper place as a pattern for the modern church. In this way, God can continue to confirm his word and give proof of the resurrection of his son in this day of universal unbelief. Hallelujah. Well, I'll tell you what, we're not a people of universal unbelief. But we look out in the world and we see a lot of things going on. But we're a church called, chosen, to bring the book of Acts to life. It's what he told us to do. It's in the book. If it's in the book, we can do it. And the book is the truth. It is the word of God and it is full and active. That little excerpt was actually in the most recent edition of the introduction of Christ the Healer by F.F. Bosworth. That's actually his son that wrote that. And it impacted me when I was looking through that because that's a timeless classic that has blessed many people and taught people how to receive from the healing power of God. And it's very current in kind of the situation that we're looking at that's present in the world. Hebrews chapter 4. Verse 12, a familiar scripture. Love this scripture. But it's just hit me in a new way, praise God. Let's, let's start in verse 10. Hebrews 4.10. I'm reading from the New American Standard tonight. For the one who has entered his rest has himself also rested from his works, as God did from his. Therefore, let us be diligent to enter that rest, so that no one will fall 
through following the same example of disobedience. Verse 12, For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit, of both joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. Praise God. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, the word of God is a living, active, breathing book. And I love this scripture because it describes what it actually can do. That it has every capacity to cross both from the supernatural into the natural. That two-edged sword can pierce into the division of the soul and the spirit. It can speak to problems of the mind. It can speak to problems of the body. It can work down to the joints and marrow, to the very core of where your cells are formed in your bone marrow. It can do that. It has the power to change the natural circumstance into something supernatural. To ascend above what you look around and feel in the world and to transform it into what the Word of God says. It's alive and active. It is the only living book you know, as we spoke about on Sunday, that regenerates itself. Praise the Lord. It's able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. So you see it addressing mind, spirit, body, every facet of life. The Word of God can handle it, covers it, and gives you all the answers you need to know about it. Praise the Lord. He's a good God. You know, I was just thinking today, well, actually, as I was kind of preparing for the service tonight, I was over here at the church a little early and just praying. Something just came up in my spirit I want to share, share with you guys. It always helps me to have natural analogies for things. Um, it just works well. It helps my mind kind of facilitate because a lot of times the supernatural things we're reading about, it helps us if we can hook that or ground that into some natural thing in the world that we know because there's a great number of parallels between spiritual and natural things. Due to my medical training, a lot of those things relate to me through what I study. It reflects back to me the Word of God because He's created that human body, that intricate system. But the thing about it that had kind of had come up to me, it was I think what it really was that got me thinking about it is I woke up this morning. Anybody gone to sleep at night and they wake up in the morning and for whatever reason they slept in some kind of unusual position that maybe your arm was cocked way back behind your head? And when you wake up, it just feels like you've got some lead weight hanging off the edge of your shoulder. And you literally can pick it up with the other hand. You can't feel it at all. You can't move it. And if you lift over, it just, it just falls by the side. You know what I'm talking about? But as soon as you move it out of that position, right, back into its natural position, you can begin to feel the return, right? You can be, the warmth comes back. That numbness goes away. You get the tingling pins and needles type feeling. Well, that happened to me this morning. And so I woke up, and my right arm was just was, was dead. I couldn't move it at all. You know, and of course, you know, you, you move it out of position, and you're like pulling out from behind your head, and it falls down by your side, and you get out of bed, you know, and then after a couple minutes, it restores itself. But for just a couple moments, you understand what it would feel like to have a dead arm, right, or a dead leg, something that was just completely disconnected. Though it was there attached, it was dead and disconnected. The amazing thing about it is, I'm not going to get in real intricate details because it won't benefit, but from, for the sake of discussion and analogy, when you take something like an arm, we could do it with a leg, anything, but let's just use our upper extremity as an example because it's something can, everybody can understand. Because when we talk about strength, especially in men, usually a man flexes his bicep. That tends to just be this natural signal of strength. Large arms, we talk about the guns, big biceps. We know those biceps are composed of muscles, obviously. There's muscles in there. But see, those muscles have every capacity of function to create strength. They can be built, they can be broken down and rebuilt, and they can perform actions in life. They can do things, right? They can pick up, move things, right? You can perform 
actions when you use your muscles. And when you strengthen those muscles, you can do more. So you can produce more intense action. Push things further, harder, faster, whatever it may be. But see, if it wasn't for the structure of a couple components in your body, that muscle would have no function. It could be as strong and as large as you wanted to make it. But if it didn't have a blood supply and it didn't have nerves that fed it, it would not be able to function. It doesn't matter how big it was built or how it was put together. It could not be supplied without blood supply or nerve supply. And those two things work hand in hand. Now, we take our, let's just take our right arm, for example, because that's kind of a symbol of strength, just a universal symbol of strong is a, is a right arm. So we take that arm. So you take the anatomy of the body. You have the heart, of course, in the chest cavity. And off that heart springs a large blood vessel. This is the arteries that leave the heart. They carry blood from the heart all the way down to the edge of these fingers. Now in the heart, you have this large blood vessel that comes off the top of the heart. It's called the subclavian artery. There's one on each side. The anatomy is a little different on the left side. But for the sake of just the concept, they're basically the same. So that subclavian, uh, excuse me, that brachiocephalic artery comes off of the heart. It comes up under this collarbone up here, becomes a subclavian, comes down, it becomes an axillary artery as it comes through your armpit. Down in your upper arm, it becomes the brachial. When it crosses the elbow joint, it splits. There's one called the radial artery that comes all the way down your thumb side. And there's one called the ulnar artery that splits, comes all the way down your pinky side. And those are called that because they follow with the bones. You've got a bone up here called the humerus, two bones, and down here in your wrist, your forearm. They're called the radius and the ulna. So they're named the same. It helps us with the learning process. We have nerves. There is a whole network of nerves up here in our shoulder area that comes off our spinal cord in our neck. It's called the brachial plexus. And that thing branches out and sends nerves all the way down our arm so that we can do what seem very simple functions to us. Because of that intricate network of nerves, we can flex our arm, we can extend our arm, we can supinate and pronate our forearm. We can do com complicated functions like adduction, which is all the fingers together, abduction, separate them like this. This function in our hand is an amazingly intricate thing, and we're doing it without thinking about it. My brain's processing, sending those signals, making this hand move, and I'm not even thinking about it. It's going so fast, so fast, working from my brain all the way to the tips of my fingers. But in that intricate process, there's hundreds of muscles in the hand that work in unison to make me be able to perform all these complex functions that we do every day. Without a blood supply to come down there to that hand, without nerves to make those muscles work, your hand would be useless. One of the gifts of being a human is having hands, right? Opposable thumbs. This is one of the most intricate little pieces of equipment on your body right here. But you don't think about it. We couldn't live life without them. We couldn't do what we do if we didn't have them. So... To prove, I want everybody to take their two fingers, and you can put it right here, come to the base of your thumb, place your two fingers right down here on the base of your thumb, and you might have to fish to find it just a little bit, but just relax, don't press too hard, you can feel a pulse. That's the radial artery. From anywhere from 60 to 80 times a minute, that thing pulses and brings blood supply into your hand on that side of the hand. We check that when we check someone's pulse to make sure they're living. If that thing stops, we got a problem, Jack. It's not a good situation. Now, has anybody ever hit their funny bone? Sure. Does anybody know what the funny bone is? It's not really a bone at all. It's actually an area in the elbow where a nerve runs through a groove. I can't show you because I've got sleeves. But we've got uh, somebody with that. Let me see. Let me see your arm, Josh. Send up for me. All right. Here's a big, strong right arm right here. Can you pull your sleeve up for me a little bit? Right in this groove, right here. There's a nerve that runs, and sometimes you might can feel me pressing it. There's a little nerve in this spot. If I hit it in the right spot, it's really sensitive. It's probably been damaged. Oh, yeah? 
So he's got a nerve that runs right through this groove in his elbow. That's his funny bone. Now, whether Josh's response or not, I don't know. But normally, if I could take some kind of sharp object or bump it on a table, he would get a flash that would come up through his arm all the way to the edge of his fingertips. If I compress that nerve for a while, I can tell you exactly what's going to happen to Josh's arm. He's going to have numbness in this little finger and half of his right finger right here. I promise you that's how it's going to happen because that's how the nerve distributes. So when it's compressed, he's going to lose sensation in those fingers. and It's going to get a little numb at first right here. And as it continues to compress over time, the whole thing is going to just, the numbness will track all the way down this side of his arm, and eventually he's going to get where he can't even move that whole arm if you compressed it long enough. So he's got to have that nerve supply. Thanks, baby. Sit down for me. Thank you so much. So we know that we need a nerve supply and a blood supply and a basic concept to make this stuff function, make it work. So every day we've experienced things like that, like we felt our pulse, we've, our arms gone to sleep, those kind of things happen. Now, something really interesting that struck me, and the whole reason I'm sharing this example with you, is this is an example that the Spirit of God just began to speak to me that works. If you guys were here on Sunday, we talked about faith, of course, and we talked about the Word of God. We talked about some other things, but we talked about the unison of the two as the requirement. You have to have the Word of God to make faith happen, but the two have to work in unison. Well, you need to think, when we just use in our natural analogy of just our arm, a blood supply that supplies and brings all the blood which has all the life in it, there's an extreme amount of complexity involved with that that brings the giving life through the blood of all the components needed to feed those muscles what they need, to feed the connective tissue in your arm, the things they need to keep going to make those cells operate. And the nerves act like an action potential. They are literally biological electricity. That's, a, that's what they are. And so they function in a way they stimulate those muscles, and we can perform all those complex functions. Okay, now, the Word of God is like the blood supply. The nerve, the action potential, is like faith. So faith, the action, or the action potential is what we call, when a nerve conducts, we call that an action potential. When faith acts in combination with the blood supply, the word of God, then the manifestation occurs. That's the process. So we have a natural analogy that shows us that. Same way that God's put our body together, we can think of those two things as a component. And what's even more interesting than that, which as I was just kind of thinking about this, there's a specialized network of nerves that travel along an artery. Arteries are the blood vessels that carry the blood to stuff. Veins bring stuff back to the heart because you have to bring oxygen continually back into your blood supply. Veins bring it back, but the arteries take it. Now, traveling with the arteries, the arteries are where you feel the pulse. The veins don't pulse. The arteries pulse. They're actually alive. The heart pumps, and there's this pulse that follows all the way with the arteries down to wherever they're going to keep the blood moving to get it where it's supposed to go so it can come all the way out to our fingertips, down to our toe tips. Now, the interesting thing about it is there's a special network of nerves that travels just along the surface of the artery that helps that thing pulse. So in our analogy, we have our, our technical medical term for it is called the vasoviscorum. But what it does is essentially it's just a network of nerves that travels that artery. So we literally have, in our analogy, a nerve that keeps alive and stimulates the propagation of the blood pressing through that artery. So in our spiritual analogy, we literally have faith acting in the Word of God to push it forward and make it happen. So those two things have to work in unison. They have to work together. Praise God. Does that make sense to you guys? I tried to that get too complicated. I'm sorry if I did. So we talked a little bit on Sunday. We talked a little bit about the process of hearing. And I realized on Sunday afterwards, I know we talked about a lot of stuff, that I never actually made the point of why I even talked about the whole hearing process. Because what we got into is we were talking about vision, talking about hearing, talking about the specialized senses. 
And I didn't even come back around to actually say what I wanted to say about that. And the fact is that we have all these specialized, intricate senses that we talked about that are really cool, like taste and touch and vision and hearing and all that stuff, which is very, very cool. But the thing about it is we are kind of, in our natural man, bound to living by those specialized senses. If we can't taste it or touch it or see it or feel it or hear it, then our natural man doesn't really give it much credibility as if it actually exists. It really doesn't. But see, you have to understand that God created the body, and he created those specialized senses. So he's not saying, take the body I gave you and ignore that it works. That's not what we're talking about. We understand that we are a spirit, number one, that our spirit is us, that we have a mind, have a soul, and live in a body, right? So he's not telling us to totally defy our body. Our body is our vehicle and our connection to this natural planet. And those specialized senses he gave us to do what we're supposed to do in this world. So that picking up your new little newborn baby is an intimate interaction because you feel and interact. You see, hear, and touch that little baby. When you taste food, because of the taste buds God put on your tongue, food becomes an experience, something that you enjoy that doesn't just fill your stomach, but is an engaging activity in which you can sit in fellowship with others and it creates something that every one of us loves to do. It's not just about the eating. It's about having the opportunity to eat and interact and fellowship because there's always such great communion that happens in those environments. God made all that stuff. But here's what I'm trying to tell you. You need to live by your sense knowledge. You need to live by those senses because here's the deal. If you don't live by your senses, you walk across the street, a car's coming, it ply you down. All you had to do was look and see it. But if you don't live by that, you could get run over by a car. God gave you natural sense. There's a car coming. Don't walk. We don't all want to have to show up at your funeral and saying, why didn't you just not walk across the street? It's really simple, right? So he wants us to use those things. But here's the deal. When there comes the moment in life where the circumstances around you tell your sense knowledge to stop, but the word of God says something different, your sense knowledge has to bow its knee. So it has to fit in its proper place. So you're functioning by the senses on a daily basis, right? But you're living by the word of God. And when those two contradict, your natural senses always bow. They always bow. Not sometimes, not depending on the circumstance. They always bow their knee. If it contradicts the word, your sense knowledge has to bow its knee. So your natural faith gives way to your spiritual faith. Right? So make that a pattern that any time, because there's going to be times where that happens, where the circumstances are saying something different and your senses are saying, don't do that. But the Word of God, and that's the key, the Word of God says something different. You have to have the Word of God on it. It bows. And you trust the Word of God because it is the higher power. It was spirit, and then it was physical. The spiritual words made the natural manifestation. The spirit world became the physical. Does that make sense to you guys? Good. Praise the Lord. Thank you for it, God. All right. So we got to get God's word on it, right? Put it first. And don't consider the circumstances that contradict it. Amen? All right. I mentioned on Sunday we may get to James chapter 3. And I want to go to James chapter 3. That's going to kind of be my text tonight. James chapter 3. We're going to start at the beginning. It's only about 18 verses. It's not real long. Give a chance for everybody to get there. All right, James chapter 3, verse 1. Let not many of you become teachers, my brethren, knowing that as such we will incur a stricter judgment. 
For we all stumble in many ways. If anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able to bridle the whole body as well. We talked about the scripture on Sunday. Now, if we put the bits into the horse's mouth so that they will obey us, we direct their entire body as well. Anybody in here ride horses? Sure. It's helpful to have that bit in the horse's mouth, isn't it? Isn't it amazing how once a horse is broken, how you can get him to do what you want? You can ride bareback, yes. But when you've got the reins over the head, you've got the bridle, you have a whole lot of control over that horse. And all you've got is one little piece of metal stuck in its mouth. That horse is bigger than you, stronger than you, faster than you. If it wanted to do what it wanted to do, you really couldn't stop it outside of like using a larger weapon against it. But then you don't have a horse, so that wouldn't work, right? <laughs> the point is, is if it had a dominating type of mind, it could just defy you. But that bridle, once it's broken, has taught that horse that I have to obey what my master says. And literally, all you're doing is making a little tug one way or the other. Stop, right, left, go. And that horse knows how to respond. You're controlling it, right? So that's a good analogy. And of course, in the Bible days, we had a whole lot of horses that people were using, so it made a whole lot of sense to them because God knows how to talk to the natural man. Look at the ships also. This is verse 4. Though they are so great and are driven by strong winds, are still directed by a very small rudder wherever the inclination of the pilot desires. Anybody been on a cruise liner? Anybody seen the rudder on the cruise liners? It's a big boat. And that rudder's big compared to other boats, but compared to the proportion of that giant boat, it's amazing that thing can go out in the water and turn the way it can based off just that little rudder back there. You've got these massive ships with thousands of people on them, and it's at the inclination of the pilot. Okay, another good analogy. So also, the tongue is a small part of the body, and yet it boasts of great things. So God would say to us through his word that this small little muscle in our mouth is creating, destroying, defining. It is absolutely controlling the function of the body. And simply by controlling that one little muscle, apparently we are capable of becoming what the word says is a perfect person. But then we go on, and it's a little bit discouraging because as we continue on from verse 5, we see, see how great a force to set aflame by such a small fire. Right? Fires that burn down forests usually start somewhere and they start very small. Usually it's some little kindling. It could be a cigarette tossed out a window in a, dry, in a lot of, you know, like dry drought situation and burn down a whole forest. Well, it started off real small. Another great analogy. The tongue is a fire. This is verse 6. The very world of iniquity. That's a harsh statement. The tongue is set among our members as that which defiles the entire body and sets on fire the course of our life and is set on fire by hell. You guys need to underline that phrase, and sets on fire the course of our life. I recently heard Brother Copeland teaching out of this passage, and there, in the root translation of some of that, there's the same word from what I understand related to, I believe it's the Greek, that actually signifies between course and will are actually the same thing. And so by replacing the, will, the word will in there, it sets on fire the will of our life, and essentially it begins the cycle of defining what our life is going to become right here. For every species of beasts and birds, of reptiles and creatures of the sea, is tamed and has been tamed by the human race. But no one can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. With it, we bless the Lord our Father. And with it, we curse men who have been made in the likeness of God. All of us have been guilty of that. From the same mouth, praising God and cursing men who He made. From the same mouth came both blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be this way. Does a fountain send out from the same opening both fresh and bitter water? 
No. Can a fig tree, my brother, produce olives? No. Can a vine produce figs? Nor can salt water produce fresh. Okay. So there's a little, in my Bible, there's a little break right there, and it transitions to another section of the chapter that says, My heading says wisdom from above. But the thing that's always important to remember when we're reading the Word of God is that it was originally written, it was like a letter. There weren't breaks, and there may have been paragraph breaks, but there weren't breaks in separation of scriptures and chapters to stop the flow of thought. So just because there's another number there, or because there's a title there, doesn't necessarily mean that's where you need to stop. And that's why you have to be sensitive to the Lord sometimes and read it through. Because you've got to catch the fullness of the thought. Because up to this point, it's been a little bit discouraging. Because what I hear is we've got this powerful force with our tongue that obviously is speaking about words and what it can do to us and how it can destroy us. How, it can, how it's like a fire in a world of iniquity. And all of that simply says, okay, great, you told me this, but there's no solution here. I mean, what are you saying? You're telling me that like I'm never going to be able to overcome this, that it's going to wreck my world. Well, we have to keep reading. So we roll into verse 13. It says, Wisdom from above. Who among you is wise and understanding? Let him show by his good behavior his deeds in the gentleness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy, selfish ambition in your heart, do not be arrogant and so lie against the truth. This wisdom is not that which comes down from above, but it's earthly, natural, and demonic. Verse 16, for where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder and every evil thing. I'm going to look at a couple different translations of this. In the King James, it says, for where envying, this is verse 16, for where envying and strife is, there's confusion and every evil work. The Amplified says, for wherever there is jealousy, parentheses, envy, and contention or rivalry and selfish ambition, there will also be confusion, unrest, disharmony, rebellion, and all sorts of evil and vile practices. The message says, whenever you're trying to look better than others or get the better of others, things fall apart and everyone ends up at the other's throats. It is. It is huge. Because what we're talking about here is not disconnected thoughts. God's connecting the wisdom of this age to the power of the tongue. And he's connecting the wisdom, his wisdom, to the power of the tongue. He's putting the two things together and he's showing you how you can overcome the iniquity that's in your mouth. So we see that when we speak of natural man's wisdom, when we live natural man's wisdom, when we do what's naturally comes to us through our training in the physical world, it's described as earthly. A lot of it is earthly and natural. And then it also says that much of it is demonic, meaning against God. And we see that the production of that wisdom creates jealousy, strife, that becomes confusion. And in that lies every evil thing. That's the kind of stuff we bring into our gatherings. That's the world that we bring in when we come into church. That's what walks in in our head from the world that we live in. That's the kind of stuff that causes the unrest, the trouble, the dissension in the church. That's where some of that mess comes from. That's why the renewal of the mind is such an important thing. That's why the washing of the water of the word matters every single day. Because none of us is above it. Not a single one of us is above it. Just give it a few days and you're talking curtly. You're mean to your wife or your husband. You're sharper than you were. You have a shorter 
You don't have patience. You have a shorter temperament. You're quicker to flare up. All those things. Not because you're a bad person, but because you're a natural person. But this book makes you supernatural. This book literally takes your brain out of your head and dunks it in a solution that cleanses it from all impurity. It is like you're bathing your brain in the morning or the night or whenever your God time is. It's like you are scrubbing and washing it down. That's what the Word of God does to it. And it helps you think this way. Because we've seen time and again people have stepped away from the church. And in most circumstances, now this is not by any means 100% across the board, but when you get to a church like this, where the fullness of the Word of God is preached, generally the next step in leaving a place like this is backsliding all the way back down the mountain. It doesn't have to be that way. And I'm not talking about because other people go to other cities, they join other things, they're called to go other places. So don't, don't misunderstand me. I'm talking about a person that's staying where they are, the same region they're in, knows they're supposed to be in that church, but maybe gets offended or upset or whatever happens, and they say, I'm just done with this right now. I, I, I just want to stop. It's very rare that they properly get hooked in from that point. And if they don't, I've seen it time and again, their lives literally crater and destroy. They fall apart in every way. Now, God would be there in a second to restore them back. But usually they cannot overcome the embarrassment of coming back to the same people they knew if they think anyone knows what's happened to their life while they were gone. So they can't ever get themselves back in the church as much as they know that it would restore them. None of us are above that. It literally is taking walk away two nights, set down your Bible, and you don't look at it for a while. Man, that stuff already starts going to work on you. Day after day. So you need to understand that. I'm not trying to scare you. I'm saying that's the reality of the situation. The devil is out to kill you. He'll destroy your family. He'll rip you apart, and he wants you to burn in hell. He's a bad dude, and that's what he wants. But he has no power against this book. No power. But he does have power against your natural man. It doesn't matter how much you bench press, how fast you run, how much money you make. That is his world, his domain, and he knows how to get to you. But if you live in this, he cannot touch you. Can't touch you. He's already been defeated. He knows his time limited, and he's really scared because he knows the days are counting down. So he's fighting. He's fighting and clawing to get everything he can because he knows. He doesn't know when it's coming, but he knows it's coming. He knows Jesus is going to come and put him where he's supposed to be because he's already been whipped. His sentence has already been written out, and he doesn't know when it's coming. He's really scared, so he's fighting really hard. So understand the scramble out in life is him just with his last breath trying to make an attempt to distract you. All you got to do is put him in his place. Don't give him the power over you. You're literally handing him the keys of authority to your life. Don't let him have them. Don't let him have them. This book will tell you how to do it, how to handle, what to do. But the important thing is not that you know all the right answers, but that you get your head in the book. You've got to wash your mind. Your spirit was renewed. As soon as you came to know Jesus, bam, you became hell to heaven, natural to supernatural, transformed, redeemed instantaneously when you took Jesus in. But the mind is a process of transformation. And the renewal is day by day. And even in the highest state of where you'll be with God in your life, you're still going to have to continue to renew your mind. That's the reality. It's not something that stops. It's an active process. So that's why gatherings like this are so important, and even more so your personal time. Praise God. So, we see that that wisdom, we have natural man's wisdom and the supernatural wisdom. And we've seen our examples of what it can do in the church. We've seen with our eyes, we can think of neighbors, we can think of co-laborers in the Lord in which this has happened to, in which these situations have arisen. Any church you go to, you can find them. They're obviously there. We literally have enmity and iniquity working among us. And some days, in the same day, 
We're helping someone overcome it and contributing to them falling to it. It ought not to be this way. It's what the Word says. And the only way we avoid it is by doing what we do know to do and staying after it. Because God's grace is bigger, greater, more than any circumstance. Praise God. So, verse 16, where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder in every evil thing. Verse 17, here comes the good part. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, reasonable, full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering. I love that. Unwavering. It's not like the wind tossed to and fro. It's not like the reeds in the field. It's not like the waves. Steadfast. It's like the giant oak that's been there for a hundred years. It's not uprooted easily. Not at all. Because it went, spent a lot more time building itself down into the ground, established foundation before it ever went up. So by the time you saw that big trunk going up, you need to know there was a huge root system underground that kept that thing planted, and that's why it was been there so long. So we have to be like the tree planted by the streams of living water, right? So in Psalm 1? Absolutely. That's talking about us. It's an analogy. You look at a tree, you ought to think about stability. You ought to think about saying that is our living example that we drive by every day that we see in our very yards that attest to the Word of God and what it can do in your life. It makes you stable, unwavering, reasonable, peaceful, godly, strong, rich, healthy. Why would you not want all this? You'd be crazy not to. But why couldn't you? Because you were living with natural man's wisdom. You weren't renewed in your mind. So we have to help people see that their mind needs to be renewed. We have to stick with it until the foolishness of what they think all this is becomes, wow, but look how much better their life is. Look how happy. Look how stable they are. Look how everything's held together for them, despite all the economic circumstances, despite the challenges they've had. They're the same day in and day out. There's, that's where when we say they notice something different about you, a lot of times that comes from them knowing you a long time and watching how stable you've been in your life. Not because everything's gone right, but because you were the same no matter what was going on. That's the type of examples we have to be. So when someone comes back 10 years later, they know where they're going to find you. They know that they're going to find you living right, stable, and strong. Praise the Lord. Praise God. Only this book can do that. Only our understanding of this book can do it. Unwavering, and the last part, verse 17, without hypocrisy. Now, we think of a lot of things when we think about hypocrisy. But something I want you guys to think about is to be a Christian and to live by your senses above the Word of God is hypocrisy. That's the definition of hypocrisy. We can take it on a lot of trails. But to say you serve God and to live only in the natural, that's hypocrisy. Verse 18. And the seed whose fruit is righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. This verse did not come to me right away. I knew sometimes you'll read a scripture... And you'll look at it, and it will strike you, but you'll know you don't know what it means. But you know that you're supposed to figure out what it means. And I'll have scriptures like that periodically where I'm like, I'll read over it, and it's like, okay. I, that, that, it, I, the only way I know to describe it is it's like it just kind of hits you. It's like, okay, I know that's important, but it, it's not clicking for me. I'm not seeing what's there. So sometimes it helps me to look at some other translations. You know, if you have a favorite Bible to read, sometimes you've got to break out the other ones and take a look in the different parts. But the most important thing is you say, God, I see that I'm supposed to see something here, but I need you to show it to me. I'm a little thick sometimes. I'm not getting it. I need you to just show me. And sometimes he's got to just flash the lights down and just say, okay, this is the reason. But a lot of times he'll say, read it again. 
Read it again. Look at this translation. Read it again. So let's look at it in a couple different translations. So this is the New American Standard. And the seed whose fruit is righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Now in the Amplified, obviously much longer, it says, And the harvest of righteousness, of conformity to God's will and thought and deed, is the fruit of the seed sown in peace by those who work for and make peace in themselves and in others. That peace, which means concord, agreement, harmony between individuals with undisturbedness in a peaceful mind, free from fears and agitating passions and moral conflicts. Boy, that's a good version. And the message says you can develop a healthy, robust community that lives right with God and enjoys its results only if you do the hard work of getting along with each other, treating each other with dignity and honor. Now, that waters it down a little bit, but it does hold a little bit of the core of what's actually, when you kind of dig out the King James, the New American Standard, and what it's saying. The seed of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. So I had to see and understand that the righteousness wasn't about the, just the individual's righteousness there. It's talking about a corporate righteousness. It's talking about sowing the seeds of righteousness in a community of believers, of understanding that all of us have been given the gift of righteousness, but that is created by our capacity to work in peace both with ourselves and to other people. And that's what the Amplified bears out. Is it said, those who work for, work for and make peace. The message says, if you do the hard work of getting along with each other. So what we're seeing is a gateway here in which peace, working at peace, becoming a peacekeeper, opens the door for righteousness to spread itself the way that it should. You're sowing the seed of peace into those situations so that the fruit that's born, the harvest that's born, is righteousness for that community, for that area. So we become active participants in taking this wisdom, coding it in peace, sowing it to produce the understanding of righteousness. And as we know, righteousness defined is right standing with the Father. The receiving of right standing with the Father. Praise God. I know it's a little... It's a little offsetting because it kind of struck me that at first. But that's what you have to understand. And that's what I'm talking to you about tonight and what I want you to see from this. There, as I usually say, Jesus has done 99.999% of the work. All we have to do is take and believe it. But what's important as a grown-up believer, and the thing you need to spend your time doing, is finding out how you are an active participant. What responsibilities you have to respond to the Word of God. He's given you eternal life. He's brought the blessing in the door. You have to find out what you have to do to be an active participant to take that in your community, to make it real on the day-to-day -day level. It's good in church to talk about. It encourages us. It's important because that's where we grow and build one another. And it's important in your quiet time. But as soon as you hit the street, if all that washes away, it's not of any use for eternity for the person next to you. So we are called to be peacemakers. Now, we automatically think of peacemaker as a quiet, humble, turned-in type individual. What I should say is, most people, when you say the word warrior, don't think peacemaker. But a lot of times, the word warrior does mean peacemaker. The beautiful thing about Western civilization that makes me honored to be a citizen of it is that no matter what anybody else in the world says, when people have a problem, whether it's ours or not, sometimes we go help them fight it. We didn't, have, we didn't have a dog in the fight, so to speak. 
There were, there were moments when we did in World War II when Japan attacked us, yes. But in so many other scenarios, due to our most recent deals with Iraq, we didn't necessarily have a dog in the fight, but we went to the help of those in need. We sowed ourselves away. That's what makes Western civilization a beautiful thing. Because there's an understanding, even if they don't know it's God, they're being like Jesus. They're sowing themselves to the world when they didn't directly have a reason because there could be ramifications for those decisions. So people were willing to go and fight to bring peace. Our whole entire history has been about people that fought and gave everything to make peace. They were peacekeepers. And their desire was that even if I lay down my life, I'm producing an environment where people can walk free. I'm creating a place. And that was what they had to believe when they stormed the hills, stormed the beaches of Normandy. That's what they had to believe when those bullets were flying, when they knew that their life could end. They're saying, we're building a better tomorrow. We are restoring peace, keeping ourselves safe. That's what the scripture is talking about. It's talking about being peacemakers. So sometimes there are moments when we have to fight. I'm not talking about physically, because that's a rare occurrence. And that's not even something that I want to get into tonight, because there are moments. I mean, if someone attacked my family, you don't need to sit there docile praying. You need to respond. But that's not something we're talking about tonight. We're talking in a spiritual sense about peacekeeping. That there are times that you have to be a spiritual warrior to bring peace into the environment that you're in. If it's trying to be stolen away from you. And in the process of making that hard work for peace, as it's restored, you have to keep it. And you have to live in it. And you have to sow it. And you have to give it away. God's called to be peacekeepers. Let's look at Matthew 5, Matthew chapter 5, verse 9. Anybody familiar with the Beatitudes? Does anybody know what Matthew 5, 9 says? Blessed are the peacemakers? Amen. My Bible says, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God, the sons of God. Amplified says, Blessed, enjoying enviable happiness, spiritually prosperous, with life joy and satisfaction in God's favor and salvation, regardless of their outward conditions. Can you guys put the Amplified up there for me so they can see it? Regardless of their outward conditions are the makers and maintainers of peace, for they shall be called sons of God. When he gets there, we'll look at it so you guys can see it. Blessed, enjoying enviable happiness, spiritually prosperous, with life, joy, and satisfaction in God's favor and salvation, regardless of their outward conditions, are, can you go to the next part? The makers, the makers, that requires action, and maintainers of peace, for they shall be called the sons of God. Message says you're blessed when you can show people how to cooperate instead of compete or fight. That's when you discover who you really are and your place in God's family. It's real good. Praise God for it. So, I always hope that when we gather together that I can stimulate you to the good deeds of what your faith means. Because God has given you everything, blessed you, He's taken care of you. This is beyond you. He'll take care of you. He is taking care of you. You stand on those promises and live them, but it goes beyond you. It goes to your right and to your left. 
It goes across the street. It goes across town. It goes from across town to across the province, across the province to across the country, and from across the country to another country across the world. That's how. We're the makers of peace and the maintainers of peace. And all that, as we see bored out in the scriptures in James 3, is how the wisdom creates the capacity to see it and function in it. Because the wisdom of God restores, it brings the fullness of peace to life. Because you realize God is omnipotent, He is all-powerful. He is fullness. So what do I have to fear? Nothing. And there comes the peace. Knowing God's got you taken care of. And God wants to take care of other people. So you help them establish peace in their life. You sow peace into your church. You sow peace into your job. Because it produces what we see from James 3.18. The harvest is righteousness which only God can give, and it only can be done through his spiritual means. You cannot give anyone righteousness, no matter how hard you work, but God can, and it comes through his spiritual principles, and this is one of them. It's not all of it, but it's part of it. And it's a message that we take tonight and establish in ourselves because it makes us better people to our families, to our congregations, to those that we work with. So we have to be active players in this game, not people that sit and watch all the time so if you don't know exactly how to play the game start reading the game plan and then take a step of courage and start playing the game coach put me in coach i can do it i know i'm new i know i'm fresh give me a chance give me a chance to play we have to be active players this stuff is relatively simple when it really breaks down to it god has done all the work and he's asking us to believe, trust, and act on the word. The part that becomes difficult is not even the believing. It's the part where the believing has to transfer into action. You have to say, I believe it so much that I'll take that step against my natural senses. I promise that's a little bit challenging the first time. But as you keep doing it, it gets easier. Because you see that God is there on the other side. No, you can't see him when you first take the step because you're still in the natural. But then when you see that manifestation what you're believing for on the other side, bam. Oh, you get it that first time. It's like, oh, that was sweet. That tasted pretty good. That tasted pretty good. And then you start believing him for a little bit more. And a little bit more and say, well, I can do that. So you know what? Man, I can do that. I can go do that. I'm, I, you know what? I've got the tools to do that. I need a little work. But I can do it. You start believing in yourself. Because that's God building you up on the inside, edifying you, saying, go do it. Go get it. I've called you to take dominion. I've called you to be the champions. You are my chosen people, my speaking spirit, that I burst and gave full capacity in this world. So the, being the traitor is denying God the, what he gave us. That's being a traitor to God. That's being a hypocrite. It's saying, God, I don't care what your word says. This is how I feel. And I'm going to cave into this lower form of life that you've created, even though you said there was a higher way. I'll say with my mouth, I believe you, if that's going to get me into heaven. But I'm just going to function by how the ebb and flow of life goes. We are not those people. The first time, it's a little bit challenging, but you keep going. What I can promise is God honors his word, and he'll be there on the other side. But faith is not this empty launch into nothing, because you're not launching into nothing. No matter what you believe, if you have the word of God, you're launching into an absolute foundation of certainty. You have to believe it's there, because the word says it is. So you believe all, and trust, and go, but it has to be those components put together. Those faith in the word of God, the will of God, the word of God fused together. That is your certainty that there is a foundation. You're not launching out into nothing. You're launching out into a certainty. The truth. The absolute truth. 
such a truth that it made everything that you see. It was the source that produced the ground you're standing on. And if you see it that way, it's not hard to trust it anymore. Amen.